This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. The issue of how women are treated in federal parliament has exploded again, with new allegations of sexual assault and harassment levelled against a Liberal senator. In a heated exchange, Lydia Thorpe, an independent senator, used parliamentary privilege to point the finger at Senator David Vann. This person... Senator Thorpe, I would just warn you at this point... point, sexually assaulted me... Senator Thorpe... And the Prime Minister had to remove him from his office... And to have him talking about this today is an absolute disgrace. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has removed Senator Van from the Liberal Party room and is now urging him to quit Parliament. Senator Van insists he's done nothing wrong. There should be and must be an investigation into these outrageous claims so they can be proved to be false. It's all come in the midst of further claims and counterclaims about who knew what when regarding the allegation from Brittany Higgins that she was raped in a minister's office in 2021. I think that this week has to some extent uh, been almost like travelling back in a time machine to those very heady and sometimes emotional and uh, confronting days of 2021 when Brittany Higgins first stepped forward um, to make the allegation that she was raped at Parliament House. Samantha Maiden is the political editor at news.com.au. In the intervening months and years, many things have happened. Uh, The man that she accused has pleaded not guilty, Uh, has always maintained his innocence. There has been a trial. That trial collapsed as a result of juror misconduct. And ultimately, a second trial did not proceed, even though that was clearly what the DPP wanted because of concerns for Ms Higgins' mental health. Now we find ourselves in a situation where there has been an inquiry at a Canberra level into claims uh, that the police sided with the defence in the matter, um, considering the conduct of the DPP and police and also the victims of crime, Commissioner Heidi Yates, who supported Brittany Higgins through that process. And, of course, we've also had a defamation case um, commence. And now we find ourselves in this situation where there has been the wholesale leaking of Ms Higgins' text messages. The unseen text messages between Brittany Higgins and her partner David Shiraz show how the pair attempted to gain the support of senior Labor figures as they pursued her rape allegation. We've had the um, emergence of of audio tapes um, that Channel 10 provided under subpoena. All of these things have, have come into, you know, the public domain and that has triggered... Uh, a debate about the Labor Party and whether or not they weaponised this argument, uh, whether or not they weaponised the allegation uh, and what they knew and when they knew it. Indeed, it was a debate about those text messages that prompted the new and explosive claims from Senator Thorpe. Can you just give us the context of of how and, and why the fresh allegations came out? Yeah, so Senator Katie Gallagher has been under fire um, for, you know, almost two weeks following um, the emergence in these text messages of evidence that she was 
tipped off um, before the story broke. Now, why is this important? It's important because there was a clash in Senate estimates in June of 2021 between Linda Reynolds, the former Defence Minister and former employer of Miss Higgins, and Penny Wong and Katie Gallagher. And in that moment, uh, Linda Reynolds confronted those women and she said, I know where this started. And Katie Gallagher said, how dare you? No one had any knowledge. About what you were intending to do with the story in my office two weeks before. No one had any knowledge. How dare you? So she was clearly suggesting we didn't have any knowledge of that. And that's why Katie Gallagher has been accused of misleading Parliament because basically she said, how dare you? No one had any knowledge. But from the leaked text messages where uh, it was revealed that Mr Shiraz said that he had met with Ms Gallagher and had even potentially sent her a transcript of the project interview before it went to air. These are all of the things that led up to this moment. Senator David Van was giving a speech about that and the weaponisation and making criticisms of what had gone on. And basically, Lydia Thorpe just started interjecting. There was a sense of shock in the Senate and what on earth she was talking about. Now, Senator Van said that he was shocked He was battered. He was shattered. He said that he'd never had any physical contact with Lydia Thorpe. He didn't know what she was talking about. Um, And there was a lot of criticism of Lydia Thorpe people basically saying, oh, you know, is this an abuse of parliamentary privilege and um, how can you be saying all of these things? And then, you know, less than 24 hours later um, or about 24 hours later, we see the emergence of an allegation that at first unnamed second senator had made a complaint and then last night Amanda Stoker, barrister, former assistant attorney general, came out to say that he had, uh, in her words, squeezed her bottom twice at an event, that she'd confronted him about it afterwards and that he'd apologised. Uh, senator Van has have a different account of that. Um, he doesn't have any recollection of that occurring in terms of the incident. He does remember having respectful conversations with uh, then Senator Stoker afterwards, mm. um, but doesn't. But but you know d- disagrees that anything of that nature occurred. And and this is we believe why Peter Dutton made what at the time seemed like a very swift decision, in a way that David Van says was without due process to remove him from the Liberal Party room. Well, he suspended him temporarily. I mean, to be fair, Mr Dutton said that he wasn't making any comment on the veracity of the allegation. I suppose, look, I mean, we see this a bit from time to time with football players, you know what I mean? Like they're sort of stood down pending the investigation of this matter. Now, they have referred it to the Parliamentary Workplace Authority, which was, I should point out, was set up in response to Ms Higgins' allegations that there wasn't proper HR processes at Parliament House, which I think is worth putting out because there's been so much commentary that now, you know, that Ms Higgins should never have come forward and she should never have spoken to the media and these things should never have happened. Well, that's an argument, but if she hadn't done that, there wouldn't be any parliamentary workplace authority for Mr Dutton to refer these matters to. So I think that that's an interesting reflection. You wrote a powerful piece this week about the precedent that the leaks of the text messages between Brittany Higgins and and David Shiraz, her partner, sets. Just explain the thrust of your concerns and and those of others. Well, it's a very vexed uh, and and difficult area. And, you know, like I have to be honest, like, I mean, my mind isn't entirely made up. What I was saying in that piece was that I think that there is a public interest argument with some of the texts. For example, I think that Katie Gallagher was obfuscating, if you like, um, was not 
being very clear on what the extent of her knowledge was. And if those texts hadn't emerged, we wouldn't have been able to really prosecute that argument of, of looking at whether or not she'd misled Parliament. So I'm not saying for a moment that, that these things never have any public interest. I think sometimes they do. But I suppose my broader concern about this is where's the limit and who decides? So, for example, it would appear that she has provided these text messages to the police for the investigation of an alleged rape. No other reason. Those texts have then been provided to, you know, a group of people that's wide enough that, you know, you can't really say who leaked it. I mean, the DPP had it, the police had it, um, various defence lawyers had it. I'm not making allegations about any of those people. They're just the pool of people that had it, right? And then all of a sudden it finds its way into the media. Now, the the broader concern I have is what does it say to women that cooperate with police and give their text messages if this is where it ends up? You know, whether or not the media publishes it or not, they're still going through every text message she's ever sent. It is worrying to me. And I think you've got to ask some questions about the motivation of the people that have done this. And, and you know, clearly the people that are in the receipt of this material know who's given it to them and, and could make an assessment of the motivations of the people that have provided it. And more broadly, we've again heard claims that the culture in Parliament is really toxic towards women. Two years after the Brittany Higgins story first emerged, and, and you broke that story, I thought we were starting to make some progress on this. What's the reality? I don't necessarily agree with those people, and there are plenty of them, who think that the events of this week is a sign that the culture isn't improving. I think you can mount an argument that it is an example that the culture is improving because people have somewhere to go when these allegations are made now. That didn't exist before. Um, Women are speaking out and having these uh, claims taken seriously. Um, Peter Dutton has acted very swiftly in relation to this while it is investigated, noting that he's not commenting on the veracity of the allegation, but they need to be taken seriously and investigated. I think there are plenty of good signs there. And, you know, as I've said in other forums, um, people talk about... um, you know, that it's a toxic environment and it's a terrible environment for women. Um, I don't personally feel like that. Um, I don't personally feel frightened or terrified when I walk around Parliament House. But the point is that even if I don't feel like that, that doesn't mean that those other women or men's views are not valid. That's Samantha Maiden, the political editor at news.com.au. The Albanese government gave some ground this week in negotiations with the Greens to pass its policy on housing, a future fund that would use earnings from a $10 billion investment to build social and affordable homes. But the Greens still aren't budging on their demand for a national freeze on rent. We don't think it's sustainable uh, to basically lock in unlimited rent increases over the next few years in the context of the worst housing crisis we've seen in generations. Landlords, some economists, state governments and the RBA warn rent controls would reduce supply and ultimately push up prices further. Cameron Murray is a housing economist and research fellow at the University of Sydney. I think what we're forgetting is that the abnormal period for rents was actually the 2018 to 2021 period where rents were falling in Sydney. If if I look here to the middle of COVID in 2020, rents were down from about 
620 to about 520 over that three-year period in Sydney. And so after that sort of abnormal depression of rents, you're going to get an abnormal surge just to catch up to this normal sort of 20% rent-to-income ratio that Australia has had since the 80s, basically. Mm. So... The Greens are red hot on this, and and it seems that a majority of Australians, looking at some of the polling, want something fairly dramatic, some sort of intervention. What are the Greens proposing in in the space of rent? They seem to be starting a, a bargain by saying we want to freeze rents for a period of time, and that happened in Berlin from 2019 in Germany for a few years until it was struck down in the courts. But during the time, of course, it saved renters billions of dollars uh, per year uh, across the many hundreds of thousands of, of private rental properties in Berlin. But I, I suspect what they're pushing towards is something more like a tenancy protection where for sitting tenants, there's a limit to how rapidly their rents can be increased each year. And there is some security built into standard rental laws so that you can't forcibly remove a tenant just because you want to put the rent up faster than the, the regulated limit. That's quite common in many countries across Europe. In fact, Australia had rental freezes during the Second World War. And those type of things would only apply during those boom periods like we're seeing now, whereas in most of the time, rents are pretty stable in Australia. And I'll give you an example of, of why I think it's, it's reasonable to smooth out those shocks to tenants, because for landlords, when they pay land tax, we also smooth out their land tax if the price rises by averaging the last three years' land value. So if your land value doubles in a year, you don't pay double land tax. You actually pay only 33% extra because that that uh, double value is sort of averaged over those last three years because we know it's valuable to smooth out those sudden cash flow changes for people. So we do it for landlords, but for some reason, we're not that interested in doing it for tenants. A lot of economists point to evidence out there that rental freezes, caps, controls discourage investors, thereby reducing housing supply. Wouldn't that ultimately drive up prices and and make the problem worse? Well, you know, I've heard that debate from many economists, but if we just want to think logically, are we really believing that the property lobby thinks rent controls will boost prices and that for some reason they don't want this? They want prices to be lower? Of all the possible things for them to lobby against, the one that makes prices higher. So I really don't believe it. In fact, a lot of the studies that you'll hear some economists cite show that there's a huge incentive to invest in more housing and renovate existing housing because typically rent controls allow you to only increase the rent if you do a major renovation. So there becomes a much bigger payoff to renovating or building more houses because that's how you get more rent when the rent is regulated. Doesn't that make it harder for low-income, low-middle-income people because, you know, they don't want to live in a, a highly renovated property? Well, I mean, you're adding to the stock. There's still the same number of dwellings and the same number of people with the same incomes, except the dwellings are better, right? So there's not going to be, in aggregate, higher rents because of this. 
Uh, and secondly, everybody who's already got their rent regulated is protected from increases in, in their neighbourhood anyway. The Greens have also pointed to New Jersey claiming that there was no impact on housing supply there when rental caps were put in place. But the authors of that study concluded about the only measurable impact, they said, is that landlords may have cleverly reduced the size of rental units to create more units and profits. Uh, the, the, the example there, I mean, isn't the case that investors ultimately will find a way to, to continue, you know, making money? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So what they're doing is they're subdividing dwellings to make more dwellings as the way to make money. Like, that is a good thing. Haven't we been talking about supply, supply, supply? And don't we get supply by subdividing land into small lots and getting more houses? Or or in this case, maybe subdividing large apartments into multiple one-bedders or studios? I mean, that's exactly my point, that it, it, it does incentivize supply, but there's a big incentive to call that something bad or reframe it in a negative way because it it also will wipe billions of dollars of income from Australia's 1.7 million landlords each year and of course they'll they'll ha- use any story they can find to say why that's a bad thing so so what are the best ways you think to smooth out some of the more outlandish rent increases i think the, the what we call second generation rent controls where which are index-linked limits on on how quickly rents can be increased make a lot of sense. So, for example, the ACT has a limit of of CPI times 1.1 for tenants on ongoing contracts. So, if their CPI is 5%, then you can increase the rent 5.5% maximum in a year. And because the rental market is relatively stable most of the time with short bursts during the cycle of rapid price change, what those do is they make you smooth out, for example, a 15% rental increase over two or three years if a tenant wants to stay. So it, it reduces the number of forced relocations of tenants who don't have the income to deal with an extra couple of hundred dollars a week and then and move, but would have preferred to stay. And I think it's reasonable if we do that sort of thing for landlords on their land taxes that we can do it for tenants through tenancy laws. Queensland looked at this and decided against it. New South Wales has ruled it out. The federal government doesn't seem keen either. How likely do you think it is that we will see this policy or a similar policy adopted in jurisdictions outside of the ACT? I think it's very unlikely if you look at the political history. We saw in Queensland pretty much in eight hours they'd flipped from from flagging that they're considering it to promising that they will never limit rent increases. And so I think that it's really a political battle of financial interests here. And I don't think renters are going to win that battle anytime soon. The way that it might work is some key political swing swing elements from inner city seats with high proportions of renters, which is what we're seeing now with the Greens, almost getting disproportionate political power to their to their financial power and leveraging that to get some sort of change. That's Cameron Murray, a housing economist at the University of Sydney. Late on Sunday night, a bus carrying guests from a wedding in the New South Wales Hunter region toppled onto its side while traversing a roundabout. Ten people were killed and many others were injured. 
the next few days and the next few weeks may be worse than the initial shock as it fully comes to the realisation of what this community has gone through. The 58-year-old driver of the bus has been charged. He was granted bail after a brief court appearance on Tuesday. I think like most people, um, my first awareness of this was through the horrific TV footage that we all saw as it broke. Sarah O'Brien is a recovery and resilience specialist with the Australian Red Cross. We've seen people who have said, I, I didn't know anyone, but I just needed to be here because this is just so sad. We've had obviously friends and family and, and workmates and colleagues that, are, that have known people that have passed. Um, it's about just being with them and, and providing that shoulder and that care. Is there anything you can tell us, without breaching confidence, of course, about the sorts of things that they are telling you? I think it's just that it was a moment of absolute joy and celebration in a very cherished young couple's life and how could a moment that was just meant so much to so many end in such a tragic way. I think that has just really profoundly rocked people and it seems so senseless and it seems so unfair. You know, we've all brought our family and friends together to celebrate those moments and milestones in our lives. And so people really connect with that. And we've certainly felt that there's messages and, and support coming from right across Australia to, to these two very small rural communities in, in the Hunter Valley. Yeah, the fact that they are small communities and pardon the cliche, they are tight knit. How does this sort of tragic event impact on, on a community more broadly? Unfortunately, as you say, it's so close-knit. Everyone knows someone or people in their daily lives move through the space where the tragic accident happened. So everyone has a touch point and a connection. So it, it is that ripple effect which goes through. But then, of course, there's also the country spirit of the beauty of that connection and that the fact that everyone's connected and related means that we have everyone's support and and rallying around everyone at the Brangston uh, Community Centre here at the Crisis Centre. We've had people baking biscuits and their favourite slice because they just wanted those that needed support and comfort to have a little bit of comfort from them. The other element here is the driver of the bus who has been charged, though of course is innocent until proven guilty. But, but what sort of dimension does it add to grief when there's a focal point for kind of finger pointing? Look, at the moment, we're certainly not hearing that greatly in the community. I think at the moment, everyone is just coming to terms with the magnitude and the profound loss that they're feeling. Obviously, the, the systems will work through and the processes will happen. But at the moment, I'm not hearing a lot of those conversations. I'm, and look, I hope for people that are grieving that it is about their person and their, that person's life and celebrating that person's life and remembering all of those treasured moments and those happy times rather than the way their life ended. And um, I think that we're certainly hearing that when we're at the memorial site. People are sharing nicknames and, and you know, moments and stories as much as their sense of just complete loss and devastation. Now, what about the first responders? Obviously, this is what they do, and we understand it was an off-duty paramedic who was first on the scene, but what kind of effect does such a horrific incident have on, on first responders? Look, you're right. Um, first responders know when they 
sign up for for that job. I think my, every first responder goes into that job because they have an innate care for community and an innate want to serve, protect and care for their fellow citizens. And in doing so, they know that they will unfortunately probably come into contact with the worst of humanity and moments of great sadness. And they can, to some degree, prepare for those. But Events like this will take a toll and they are profoundly and deeply affecting. And I know that all of the first responder communities across the Hunter are rallying together. The agencies themselves are putting in extraordinary support and care and attention to their officers. Um, And that is intentional and it is purposeful and it is deeply felt and thought of. But also the first responder community, it is a broad community across Australia. I know all the first responders across Australia are really thinking of their colleagues in the Hunter, but it is for now that we need to support, but we also know that they need support in the much longer term. Indeed, you have some personal experience with this. Your husband was a first responder and has experienced the trauma of that first-hand work. Can you tell us what that's been like? Absolutely. And I suppose that's why I'm incredibly passionate about first responder mental health and first responder care. Because, yeah, my husband, Matt, was in the police for for 18 years and in fire rescue as a retained firefighter uh, for, I think, 11 years. Um, And many of those years were crossed over and, and dual service. And yeah, Matt, unfortunately, in 2021, um, he um, had a catastrophic PTSD breakdown and um, it really, for me and for our children, came quite suddenly. For Matt, it had been an internally very slow onset but had grown and grown over time. Matt now um, has been medically retired from Fire Rescue New South Wales. He's also been medically retired from his day job, which was what paid our mortgage. Mm. And he is not working at the moment and unable to work at the moment. But we are working through that. We sought professional intervention and professional care, and we were really, really intentional and deliberate with that. Our family, our daughters and myself have been so profoundly lucky that Matt was really open to seeking support. He didn't want to. He kept saying to me, I don't necessarily believe in psychology this is not the culture that I know. And I just kept saying to him, I know it's not, but I can't hold you alive and I can't hold you with us and I can't help you through this on my own. I need the professional support for you as much as you need it for you. And I was really fortunate that Matt listened to that and um, and connected with that. And he has worked so hard. Like it just, it's been extraordinarily phenomenal for me to bear witness to how hard he has worked to fight through his pain and recognise it and understand it and process it. And yeah, he is doing really well now. But it's been it's been a journey for our myself and our and our daughters and our our immediate family most definitely. Drawing on that journey, what would you say to to other families, friends, members of the community? that have been affected by this week's tragedy? Just really be open and honest about how you're feeling and what that is for you. Connect with those around you. Connecting with the things that are important and meaningful. Go take the dog for a walk. You know, go for, do those laps in the in the cold pool if that's your thing. Um, go for the bushwalk, do the colouring in, do the yoga, whatever it is that centres you and gives you purpose and gives you calm. Make that time. It, it's really, really important. But also... We know Matt was incredibly fit um, when he had his breakdown. He was running every day. He did a lot of those things. So 
it's not just about that. It's about if you're feeling like your feelings are getting big, talk to someone. The most courageous and bravest thing you can do is actually say, I need to talk. I'm not sure what's going on. I need a hand. I need some help. And you can get it. Sometimes it takes a while to find the thing that works for you. Don't give up in that. Keep fighting and keep looking for the thing that works for you and connect with it and connect with the support and the care and the friendship that's there. That's Sarah O'Brien, a resilience and recovery team leader with the Australian Red Cross. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Anna John and me, David Lipson. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.